So as you can see, I didn't get raptured last week. <laughs> Apparently the other half of our community did this week, Memorial Day. <laughs> you know, that song uh, does something to me every time I hear it. It makes something in me hurt. And it reminds me that some longings are more poignant than uh, things fulfilled. There is something about that song that strikes a chord within me at a, at a really deep level about the quest to find the place for our soul. And it reminds me that there actually is such a place for no longing that deep doesn't have a source. I don't know, it could also be that my daughter graduated this week and I've been a basket case. Those of you who know me, I don't cry, ever. I mean, every five years, you know, I, I just don't cry. I'm, I'm sure there's some deep emotionally scarred reason why that's so, but I don't. And yet I wept like an idiot when my daughter uh, graduated this week. I'll tell you more about that later. That was, that was a moment, a moment of embarrassment for my teenage sons. <laughs> yeah. The destination for our soul, there is a place. Christianity is about so much more than learning to live your life right. Although learning to live your life right is a good thing. Let me just get that you know, out there. Not living stupid is a good thing. Christianity is about so much more than living life a little better. It's certainly about more than following some set of rules or uh, instructions. It is about ch transformation at the deepest level. It's always struck me as kind of odd that you get to graduation that that uh, students write in their yearbook, don't ever change, and I'm thinking, is that wise? I would think maybe change a lot <laughs> would really be what we're after. If you're here today, which you are, and you're a follower of Jesus, part of the reason that I think you got into that was not necessarily a dissatisfaction, but a desire for something more. You were not content with don't ever change. You were hopeful that there would be transformation in your life. And quite honestly, if you've been a follower of Jesus for, you know, five years or 20 years, and it's been stagnant, you're probably a little disappointed. You expected, longed for, and looked for change. You wanted to see something happen. And I think probably if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, whether you're exploring or whatever, you're, you're, you're wanting something more, otherwise you probably wouldn't be here. You're hopeful that there can be transformation in your life. Not, not, not surface transformation, but transformation at the deepest level because in the places that we don't like to talk about, in the, in, the, in the moments of real clarity in our lives, we sense that there are things within us that really need to change. We often plaster them over with superficial changes, but deep down we know those are not the things. And Christianity is not about superficial change. It is a desire to change us at the deepest level got to find a place where that life change can happen. Now, I, I find astronomy interesting for lots of reasons, and I don't know if you know this, but scientists have recently found a planet that they believe is capable of supporting life as we know it, and it, it's called Gliese 581c. Catchy name, huh? And it's in the Gliese solar uh, system, which is about 20.5 light years away, which they say by cosmic terms is just around the corner but it's um, 120 trillion, trillion miles, which is far, really. 
And uh, the reason why that they believe life could be on that planet is because it's in what they call the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. Most exoplanets, planets outside of our solar system that have been found, cannot support life as we know it because they're either way too hot, such that water is necessary for life. And they're either way too hot, and it would be boiling or evaporated, or they're way too cold. Glias 581c is just right. It's in that zone where the conditions for life can actually happen. It strikes me that for us, there is a zone where life change can actually happen. And what we're going to look at today, as we've been looking at for the last three weeks, is our tendency to drift out of that place where life change can happen, where either through legalism, just starting to follow rules, or licentiousness, just starting to go our own way, we no longer have the conditions necessary for true life change. We drift off of that. And to, to look at that drift, and then to look at that core place for our soul, where transformation can really happen at the deepest level, we're going to be looking again at the book of Galatians. Now, let me give you a backdrop for the book of Galatians, or the letter of Galatians. So, here we are, 2011, in America. Charlotte, North Carolina, the buckle of the Bible belt. Galatians, uh, the, this letter takes place in the first century A.D., and it's in Asia Minor. And what happened was this. Shortly after Jesus died and rose from the dead in the 30s A.D., a band of people began to teach a message, a simple message that there was a Savior who had come to earth who died and who rose and was offering people life, direct connection with God. One of those who became Jesus' followers was a guy named Paul. And what Paul did, he, he wrote a good bit of the New Testament because what he did, he started to go out from where the, the sort of the center of Christianity started, which is Jerusalem. He started to go out into Asia Minor and teach this message to people. And as he did so, cores of followers would gather in a location. He never stayed long. He'd get them going for a while. The most time he spent in any place was about two years. And then he'd go off to other locations. He'd leave some leaders in place and take off. And one of the things he did is when he noticed that there were issues developing in those locations, he would write letters back that dealt directly with those issues. The letter of Galatians is one of those letters. He's writing back to a group of people who had embraced the simple gospel. Again, we are separated from God. Jesus died for us to forgive us. We believe that and enter a relationship with him, and now we live out of the, the core of that relationship. Simple message of the gospel. Galatian church had begun to drift off of that and had begun to add new rules and regulations about how life should be lived with God, and Paul writes this letter back to them to remind them, don't drift, stay at the core of what the message is because that's where life is found. I'm going to read to you a section of uh, that letter. It's in the third chapter, and I'm reading it out of a translation. I don't use that often. It's called the message. You know, there are lots of translations, and they're just different ways of, in, of uh, you know, interpreting like any foreign language, which the New Testament was written in Greek. It's called the message, written by a guy named Eugene Peterson, and I really like the way he phrases this. I think it brings out some of the, the, the texture of what's going on in the location, but essentially he's been dealing with them saying, like, look, laws are fine. Laws are fine. Rules are fine. You know, you got to have them for, you know, certain things, but they are not how you get a relationship with God. You don't earn your way, prove your way into a relationship with God. And now he's going to walk through that whole concept. Because they're saying, okay, so then are laws bad? No, 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 no. 
Is the law then an anti-promise and negation of God's will for us? Not at all. Its purpose was to make obvious to everyone that we are in ourselves out of right relationship with God and therefore to show us the futility of devising some religious system for getting by our own efforts what we can only get by waiting in faith for God to complete his promise. He says one of the reasons why he got these set of rules like the Ten Commandments was not so you could go check, I've got them all done, was to make you realize you really are not living these things out. They were supposed to help you to see that on your own you could not earn, be perfect, live this a, a, you know, incredibly right relationship with God. They were supposed to show you your need for forgiveness. And then he says, and I love this line, for if any kind of rule-keeping had power to create life in us, we certainly wouldn't gotten it by this time. Humanity has sought from the beginning of time to figure out different rule-keeping systems to make us feel better about our lives. Hey, I, I'm going to mess you up here, Liz. Not, probably not because you're really quick. Put that other slide up, you know, with the 10 and all that. Try it sometime. Come to 9 o'clock and 1040 and watch the messages. Totally different. Because one of the things that we've tended to do over the years is create different rules, sets of regulations that allow us to be okay with God, to feel better about ourselves. In the Old Testament, there were Ten Commandments. And then they added a few others. Circumcision, don't eat that food, don't drink that beer, don't watch TV. You know, let's, let's get this list of things. And they, they, they took something that was supposed to show that we couldn't earn our way with God, that we couldn't be right by ourselves, and then made it this extensive list of rules that people were supposed to follow. Now, of course, the problem was they couldn't really follow them. And so what they did is they made more, more regulations and caveats and codicils and, you know, just sort of, well, I, you can't really do that, but maybe you can do that. And I get tired thinking about it. And then we came up with, with new ones. My daily niceness value. How nice am I to people? My smile to scowl ratio. You know, we go through, we have our own system of whether or not I'm doing enough to be right with God. And then for some, it's just give me a list. And I can go through my list and either it's mentally or sometimes, be honest, sometimes you actually have one. And you're checking it off. And we set up these lists and have done so ad nauseum for thousands of years to somehow feel better about who we are. And so what Paul says is, look, if rule-keeping was the right way, I think we would have gotten it right by now because Lord knows we've tried. But it's not. This is what he says about the rules. They were there until the time we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to living God. We were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic Law. That's the law of the Old Testament. The law was like those Greek tutors, which you are familiar with, who escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction, making sure the children will really get to the place they set out for. He goes, okay, rules. What do rules do? Well, one of the things they do is they keep you from screwing up your life. They're like that Greek tutor who's just trying to keep you out of trouble. It's not the source of life or beauty or hope. It's just to sort of keep you from danger or distraction. I mean, some things you just got to not do or your life will go sideways. But what Paul says is, these things were never meant to be the source of life transformation. Now, now think about it. Following the rules, sometimes you just got to do it. But it doesn't change your life. 
where you change your life is when you figure out why you actually can't live the way you want to. Following the rules just sort of keeps you out of trouble for a while so you don't mess up the world around you. But it's not the place of life transformation. And so then what he says in this phrase I love, but now you've arrived at your destination. By faith, you have direct relationship with God. Now you've arrived at your destination. Your destination was never rule-keeping. Your destination was a direct relationship with God, the character of which can only be phrased this way. You are a child of God. Core of Christianity. Jesus died in order to make you a child of God. Not simply to forgive you, not to make you a nicer person. He died and rose to make you a child of God, adopted, embraced into his family. This is the destination. This is the place where your soul finds its home and where transformation actually happens. In the next chapter, what Paul will go on to say, he'll do a little bit of a contrast to try to help us see. Okay, here's, here's where I want you to get. It would be really easy for me to say, like, okay, the whole idea is that you're all children of God now, and you go, oh, that sounds nice. It's not nice. I mean, it is nice. But it's not nice. It is radically transformational. Right now, today, you live either as somebody who acts as if they are an orphan or a slave, or you live as a child of God. And the difference in your behavior and the change of your heart is night and day. What Paul says in chapter 4 is this. When the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might redeem receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons or his daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. He says, this is the goal. The goal is that you would know with a certainty that you are a child of God, and it will change everything. Here's how. When I was much younger, I knew a girl who, um, I, I mean, she was in a lot of ways uh, uh, remarkable. She was bright, um, she was winsome. She was attractive. She had grown up in the church. She believed certain things to be true. She believed in Jesus, you know. Believed he died for her sins, all that good stuff. And uh, her father didn't love her. I mean, I could put that all sorts of other ways. But the bottom line is this fa her father didn't love her. He was, to say he was distant would be a, a dramatic understatement. He was disengaged, uninvolved, unaffectionate. I'll tell you, something that has ramped around my brain over and over again is the phrase someone said to me once, I don't even remember who, if you don't love your daughter, she will find someone who does. Her father didn't love her. I don't know why. But she looked for it. And she, she began to sleep with anybody who would have her jumped from one bed to another. She was bright, attractive, competent. She knew all the right answers. She jumped from one bed to another. And this is not about moral failure. It's not about going, why is she jumping from one bed to another? It is about the tragic loss of heart and soul of somebody who so believed they were not loved that they would try to find it anywhere. And if one bed didn't produce it, she went to another one. And we could talk to her all we wanted about, oh, you shouldn't do that. It's not the right way to live. It didn't matter. 
The soul wants what it wants. The soul is haunted with a longing and desire for something more. The soul is haunted with the need to be loved, accepted, and approved. She did not feel that, and so she looked for it. Some years ago, I had a friend who was bright, competent, incredibly successful. It seemed like almost anything he did turned to gold, and he drove himself at it. And I never saw him celebrate a single achievement. He stressed that achievement would not come. It always did. But when it came, he simply turned and looked for the next one and wondered whether or not what he had done was good enough. You see, he had a father who was there, was not distant, but he was disapproving. It might have been better if he wasn't there because he heard the mantra over and over again that what you've done is not enough. And so he went and he looked for it. And he never found it. He knew all the right answers also about Christianity. But he did not believe he was okay. The core of Christianity is that there's no one to prove ourselves to. That God has adopted us as his children. I mean, there's a, there's a shift here at the heart and soul level that is so important and so difficult to grasp. So I want to look at it a couple of different ways. I am a father of three children. They are now stunningly 18, 17, and 13. As I told you, my daughter graduated this week from high school, and I don't cry. And yet, she walked across the stage. Now, I knew she was going to. There was no surprise. It wasn't like, oh! She graduated. I'm stunned. I knew she was going to graduate. And then she walked across the stage and she came down to us, which all the students did, and they hand the mother a rose. The fathers never get anything. <laughs> and then she said to me, hey, Daddy, and she calls me Daddy. When she calls me Daddy, I just, you know, anyway. She said, hey, Daddy, what, can you hold my diploma? Sure, honey. I'll be glad to. She walked back up on stage. I opened it up and tears are running down my face. You know, it said in there, the trustees of the da-da-da-da. It didn't say anything. It had her name on it. I don't know why. I cannot tell you why. Now, my two teenage sons, they're at the other end of the aisle because one of them looked at me and said, if you're going to cry, I'm sitting down there. <laughs> sitting there like this. I don't cry. Ever. Except about my kids. And it's usually not when they've screwed up. It's those moments when my attachment to them is so strong, I almost can't even believe it. I used to cry. My daughter was a competitive gymnast. I used to cry occasionally when she walked onto the floor to do a floor routine. Not because I was afraid she was going to break her neck. I probably should have been crying about that. But she would walk out on the floor. It's happened three or four times, and it'd be like, not like, oh, I'm going to shed a tear, but I'm going to break down. I'd be like, and I had to walk away from people. Why? I don't know, except she's my little girl. I couldn't love her more. I couldn't love my boys more than I do. They're going to screw up. They already have. They will again. I couldn't love them more. 
They will probably have to go to counseling for the ways I've parented them poorly. Nonetheless, I really couldn't love those kids more. This is what God says about us. I mean, you gotta, you got to let that sink in. I, I want my kids to live free. I don't ever want them to think they have to earn my approval. I want them to, from a base of full approval from Nan and I, to free their lives up. I want them to know that they can be who they are. I want them to be able to bear their soul knowing they're going to be okay in the end. This is what God says about us. It's a, this, this is, Paul says, this is your home. This is what you've been searching for. Adoption as his daughter, as his son, such that he could not love you more. That right now you're approved and accepted. And so you are free to live completely differently. We are restless and we roam because something feels unsettled. And we were meant to find rest. We hide and we shield who we are because we're not sure it's okay. We're driven when we ought to feel motivated. As a child of God, we can be transformed. As somebody who seeks approval, we can only keep trying. This is the place of transformation, the place that quite honestly you and I struggle to find rest in. See, Gliez 581C is 20.5 light years away, and that's close. Our nearest galaxy to us, I believe, is 4,000 light years away. That's the nearest one. There are trillions of stars and God made that. And what he wants me to grasp, and what he wants you to grasp, is that when you walk across the stage, he cries. When you screw up, he embraces you. When you succeed, he couldn't be more proud. See, any illustration could have been used. He says, you are my daughter. You are my son. I could not love you more. By any objective standard, I am less loving than the God of the universe is. And so anything I say comparing my love to my kids to his love to us is small. And I can't yet get my arms around that he might love me as much as I love my own children. If I were to get that, what happens? If I were actually to believe, you see, if you look through, read through the book of Galatians, if you haven't, if you've been following Project 345, you've already read through it. If not, go back and read through it. Because what Galatians will say is, the key to unlocking transformation in your life is faith. Not some blind, vague religious faith, but trusting and believing certain core things are true, and then looking at the, the center of your, your heart and mind where you really don't believe those and making those the place of transformation. I would have you walk out today believing, but that will be up to you, that God races to you. He runs to you. There's a parable in 
Luke 15, which is one of the gospel stories that to me is, it's almost as if I believed you could ha- I could have that one story and I don't need anything else. To me, it articulates the whole of Christianity, the story of the prodigal son. When the son, after squandering everything, really, and everything within us, the father should have said, what a deadbeat son. I will write him off. The son makes the, this paltry, inadequate, totally ineffective return back to his father. At the, at the moment's notice, at the slightest hint of return, the father runs out, stops all of his explanations, and embraces him. And Jesus gives that. He gives that very story in order for us to understand. He says how the father, how God views us. See, that changes everything. We search and we search through our work, through our relationships, through our pretending to somehow be okay when all along we're more than okay. If you have believed in Jesus, you are a child of God, adopted, which means he actually picked you. And he'll never stop loving you. So now... You can pull back those closed walls within that you didn't want anyone to see because he's already seen them and he's already accepted you. Now you don't have to simply cope with pseudo-transformation. You can actually look at the real stuff that's keeping you from being who you're supposed to be. Child of God is the place of transformation. My question to you this morning is, how do you think God sees you? And that answer is the key to life transformation. A few weeks ago at Easter, we baptized four people, and we lacked the time to tell all their stories by video. I'm going to show you one today, Amber Wagner's story, and in that you get a sense of her coming to that point of realization of how God now sees her. small town um, and in a big family. We went to church as a family um, until, I don't know, I was in my mid-teens, I guess. Jesus grew in my heart at times and at other times I think, I guess I had chosen to let that relationship slide at times. I moved to Charlotte um, a little over four years ago moved here in a relationship and um, this was not a relationship with Christ at the center. Um, That was a difficult time when it was almost as though I was discouraged from pursuing my faith at that time. So when that relationship ended, I began my search for a church here in Charlotte. I just happened to hear about it from a friend that mentioned, hey, you know, I've heard of this church and it sounds so much like you. There's so much art and music involved. It's just so you. So finally in December, I said, you know, okay, it's time to try something else. And I'd already been to four or five other churches. So I came with a couple friends and immediately that from that very first week, 
it felt like every single message had been written especially for me. All of those things, little things that just made me feel this, this is a church that brings God actually into real life. So finally when I started coming to Warehouse and just over time feeling more and more connected and then in this last six months um, I've just had this calling of it's time to get more involved, meet more people, um, become a part of a small group and do all of those things and so I started that process and started thinking about it and about a month ago when Mark first brought up that they were going to do baptism on Easter, I was sitting there listening and I just had this overwhelming feeling, it is time to do this. It is time. For me, that symbolism on Easter especially is huge. Um, and I'm looking at this as a rebirth for, for myself, as a chance to redefine the important things in my life, what I'm setting as priorities, the choices I make, um, and just a chance to kind of start over, I guess, um, with a rededication of myself to my faith and my love for Jesus and and my desire to have him guide my life. I think that God sees me as his daughter whom he loves immensely and whom he's so excited to have seek him. I'm sure that he sees me for everything that I am that I don't even acknowledge I am. Um, you hear people describe you sometimes and you're like, okay, I see, I see where you can say that about me. But he knows my true heart. And uh, that's pretty incredible. Let's pray for a minute. Lord, would you take our hearts and our souls and wake them a bit more today? You, you've promised that as we follow you, your spirit would come and, and be with us and in us. And we ask for that today that you would be speaking into our hearts at the, at the deepest levels where beauty resides, but where damage does too. Make us more alive today. We want real transformation, not the plastered on transformation that we often use in order to fool people into thinking we're better than we are. Give us hearts that are free and lives that are changed. And give us the ability to believe that how you say you see us, you really do. I pray that you'd meet us in this time of response. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.